you know, it's kind of funny, but every year when it comes to the Christmas season, when it comes to Christmas Day in particular, I always have a bit of a writer's block. Partially because I know, I guess, there's a lot of people there who aren't normally going to be there, but also because of the solemnity of the occasion, right? There's a certain intimacy which which comes with uh, Christmas Day, which almost demands that um, the homily is a certain way. It can't be flippant. It can't simply be funny, but there has to be something to it, right? Now, that said, whenever I have writer's block in the context of writing the homily, I always do one of two things. First of all, I tell myself to keep it simple. But secondly, I tell myself that I probably got to live my life more, right? In other words, there's probably something I haven't been exposed to, something I haven't read, some video I haven't seen, some conversation, for example, I haven't had, which I need to experience before writing the homily. And certainly that was the case before writing this homily for the occasion of Christmas Day. So basically, as a bit of background, a couple of weeks before Christmas, I happened to come across this video on YouTube where Stan Lee, uh, one of the key figures in the context of Marvel Comics, was giving the keynote address for this convocation speech, right, in the context of the grad class for 2017 at UCLA. And in the context of the speech, he was talking about how he came up with the idea of Spider-Man, who, of course, is one of the greatest fictional superheroes of all time. And so basically, this was shortly after he came up with the idea of the Fantastic Four and, and the X-Men. And so his publisher came to him and said, Stan, we need you to come up with the idea of another superhero, right? And so Stan, in speaking to the crowd, was talking about his creative process. So basically what he said is that he typically begins by thinking about the power of the superhero. What's the power of the superhero? And from that, everything kind of flows. So then what happened is kind of a simple thing. I guess he was in his office and he saw a fly in the wall. And he thought, that'd be kind of cool. It'd be kind of cool to have a superhero that can kind of crawl on walls. So then he thought, well, what kind of name can I give this superhero? Uh, Flyman, Mosquito Man. And then eventually, of course, he came up with Spider-Man, right? And so there was a certain resonance and drama that kind of came with that particular name. And so he liked the sound of it. And so, yeah, the guy's name was going to be Spider-Man. But then he was thinking about other things to kind of flesh the character out. So first of all, he thought, why not give this guy personal problems, you know, just to make him relatable. And then I guess to make him more relatable, he thought, why not just make this guy a teenager? Because apparently at the time, that wasn't really the thing to do. There weren't really teenage superheroes back in the day. But then what's funny is that after he came up with the idea of Spider-Man and took it to his publisher, his publisher, who was apparently a rational and intellectual kind of guy, said, Stan, that's the worst idea for a superhero I've ever heard in my life. And then he went on to enumerate the reasons why the idea of Spider-Man wouldn't work. So the first thing he said was that, Stan, people hate spiders. People hate spiders. And so for that reason alone, you can't have a superhero named Spider-Man. But the second thing is this. Teenagers can only be sidekicks. Teenagers can only be sidekicks. And so, for example, when it comes to Batman and Robin, Robin's a teenager, right? But Batman can't be a teenager because, again, teenagers can only be sidekicks. They can't be the primary hero in the context of a comic book. But the third thing is this. Don't you know what a superhero is? Superheroes can't have personal problems. And so, yeah, like, what were you thinking, basically, Stan? So those are the three criticisms that the publisher had directed to the character of Spider-Man. As a result of which, Stanley sort of abandoned the idea of Spider-Man for the longest time. But then what happened is that there was this comic book that was about to go out of print, and the comic book was called Amazing Fantasy. And so the whole idea is that when there's a last issue of a particular run of comics that's about to expire, if you will, basically you can put whatever you want in it because, you know, the series is about to end. And so to kind of get out of a system, Stanley decided to put the character of Spider-Man, the origin story, the whole nine yards, into that final issue of Amazing Fantasy. 
But then what's funny is that about a month later, the sales figures came in. In the aftermath of which that same publisher ran to Stan's office and said, Stan, Stan, remember that character we both loved? Let's make a series about Spider-Man. And then everything kind of flowed from there. Now, the reason why I bring up that story, the reason why I'm spending so much time on that particular analogy is because, for my money, this is a really great way to explain, in a modern sort of sense, the reason why people would have been completely scandalized at the time of Christ by the notion of the Incarnation and the Christmas story in general. And so, for example, think about the publisher's first objection to the character of Spider-Man. People hate spiders again, and therefore, for that reason alone, you can't have a superhero named Spider-Man. Well, I don't know if this is a big surprise to you, but a lot of people hate kids. And at the time of Christ, in that particular cultural setting, people really hated kids. So much so that they denied kids their own sense of personhood. And so the whole idea was that unless you were able to produce that which the world found to be important and valuable, you lacked the dignity of being a person. You were denied essential personhood. And so again, children at the time of Christ, they weren't considered to be people. And so just to think it through, right, if that applies to kids, how much more so does it apply to babies, right? And so just to bring it back to the incarnation and the Christmas story, the very notion that the one living and true God, the Alpha and the Omega could take on flesh and become this, this weak, shivering, frail child would have been seen as completely scandalous in the eyes of the people of God living at the time of Christ. Okay, so that's kind of the first thing. But think again about the second thing that the publisher said, right? Teenagers can't be superheroes. Teenagers can only be sidekicks. And of course, implied in that is this notion that what's a superhero? A superhero is someone who is tall and strong and muscular, as opposed to that weak, frail kid that you knew growing up who lived across from you on the street. And of course, what do we find in that but parallels with the young Messiah, right? And so after being born in Bethlehem, Jesus, of course, grows up in the little town of Nazareth. And what do people say to him? Some variation of, isn't this the son of the carpenter? Or can anything good come out of Nazareth? And of course, implied in all this is this massive sense of scandal. They're completely scandalized that God, the Messiah, emerges very much in the midst of the simple and the humble and the ordinary. But that brings us, of course, to the publisher's final objection to the character of Spider-Man. So again, Stan, don't you know what a superhero is? A superhero can't have personal problems. Now, obviously, this kind of begs the question, what does this have to do with the Christmas story? Well, in order to see the connection, you need to look past the images of Christmas that you typically find in the modern culture, right? And so uh, the modern culture tends to give us really sanitized images connected to Christmas, right? So think about uh, the manger scene. Think about the shepherds in the field. But when you look at the gospel, if you look closely, you see consistently tragedy, conflict, even violence. And so, for example, in the context of the Annunciation, where the angel Gabriel appears to the Blessed Virgin Mary, she obviously accepts the invitation to be the mother of the Savior, at which point she, Joseph, and obviously the child Jesus, collectively, they actually become, objectively, the Holy Family. But then you'll notice what actually happens to them in the immediate aftermath of Mary accepting the invitation. Again, conflict, tragedy, and violence. And so, for example, there's no room in the inn. There's a murder of the holy innocents. There's a subsequent flight into Egypt where they don't know the language, they don't know the culture. After that, they're called to go back to the little town of Nazareth where they're called to live the hidden life for a really long period of time before Christ embarks finally on the public life, right? And so the whole point is that you gotta imagine during this time, they're probably thinking to themselves, are we really the holy family? Are we truly the holy family? Because there seem to be all these different circumstances which would seem to suggest that we're actually not. You see, therein lies the great challenge, and there we say invitation of the Christmas story. 
which is basically to say this. Whenever we're tempted to run away from our lives, precisely because they are painful, or messy, or very much couched in the simple and the humble and the ordinary, we need to remember the example of the Holy Family. We need to remember the Christmas story and trust and believe that God is powerfully active, powerfully at work, precisely in the midst of our pain, precisely in the midst of the messiness of our lives, precisely in the midst of the simple and the humble and the ordinary. Okay, one final example, and I'll kind of end with this. So, as you might recall, there's this really great scene in the context of the Christmas story where Joseph realizes his wife is pregnant, and certainly not by him, and he's trying to decide what to do. And so he makes this tentative decision to send Mary away quietly, but then an angel appears to him in a dream and gives him instructions from the Lord. And what I want you to do at this point is to listen to these words. Listen to these words spoken to Joseph as if they're being spoken to you. In light of everything we've been talking about today, in light of this reality that God is powerfully active in the midst of the simple and the humble and the ordinary, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of the messiness of our lives. So listen to these words now. Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You will name him Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. And may God bless you all.